Hello and welcome to the next episode of our Tilney Investment Podcast and the first of 2022. We'd like to wish all our clients, subscribers and listeners a very happy new year. I'm Sam Coppin, Investment Director from Tilney's London office, and I'm talking with Ben Seeger-Scott, our Head of Multi-Asset Funds, recapping performance of the major asset classes in 2021 and discussing our outlook for the year ahead. We're recording the podcast in my homes today on Monday the 10th of January. And before we begin, here's some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or recommendation and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise, and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carry varying levels of risk, depending on the geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you're unsure about the suitability of an investment, or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. Well, Ben, Happy New Year. And let's, before we dive into your thoughts for 2022, first look back on last year, which was a bit of a mixed bag, really, for asset classes. Uh, But which sectors were the winners and which were the laggards? Thanks, Sam, and Happy New Year to everyone. Um, Yeah, I mean, 2021 was an interesting year. And I think, as we look back, Markets have really unsurprisingly been in turmoil since the end of 2019. And, you know, we look at the different asset classes. Obviously, equities had a sterling year or very good year last year, even as sort of government bonds um, sold off uh, and other asset classes absolute return, um, corporate bonds, etc. sort of went through the middle. But I think... You know, when we talk about sectors, I think perhaps the, the devil in the detail is is around the individual equity sectors. And there you can have very significant um, divergences. Um, obviously, in 2019, we saw the biggest divergences. And I think it's relevant to talk um, about sort of 2020 as we talk about 2021, because obviously within that, that, that broader cycle, we saw a bit of a, a rotation in terms of sector leadership. Now, as always, these things don't fall entirely evenly on, on sort of calendar years. Um, and, you know, actually, historically, we've talked about 2020, 2021, now 2022. Actually, more realistically, what we have these days is we have the sort of COVID era um, for, from from the beginning of 2020. Then we have the vaccine era. Um, and that the vaccine era defined really 2021. The big move started from uh, November 2020 with those uh, successful trials of vaccines, but most of that benefit largely seen in 2021. But of course, it's complicated by the fact that because we are in the COVID era, we keep having these sort of mini cycles, there's a recovery kicking off, but there's another variant and that sort of stalls um, a little bit. And that's a long way of saying what did particularly well last year, unsurprisingly, was energy. Now in 2020, energy was the worst former. All the numbers I look at are always in total return terms. But obviously, energy got hammered in 2020 as the virus took hold. It was down 30% in 2020. But then in 2021, it soared to a 42% gain. Now, energy is a very volatile sector. Anyway, it's highly cyclical. uh, And those swings are very characteristic. But the best former last year was energy. And actually, it was a similar story. Again, you look at the, the, the three bottom sectors, in 2020, energy, real estate and finance, those were generally the best performers uh, in uh, in 2021. Um, so real estate up 29 and a half, finance up uh, 29%. So really bouncing back. But the other detail, and it's why I talk about county is not falling 
quite as quite as well. What we've seen more recently is this big turnaround, uh, and, and the fly in the ointment is IT. Unsurprisingly, the stay-at-home trade has really helped IT, and there was a sense maybe it would come under pressure uh, in uh, in 2021 just because of uh, the relaxation of the stay-at-home trade. But actually, if you look at calendar year 2021, IT did pretty well. It made 30%. It was actually the second best performing sector. But it's worth highlighting, and sorry to to pollute uh, our our discussion here, but if you just look at the very first week that we've had in 2022, we've seen acceleration of all the trends we saw at the back end of last year. So there's numbers I just gave you, 42% for energy, 30% for information technology. If instead of the very end of 2021, you include the first week where a lot of those sort of trades worked out, actually, there's a much bigger divergence. Energy has actually made 54% uh, from the start of 2021 to the first week of 2022. Uh, And information technology has actually uh, lost around six percentage points in the start of the year. So, you know, calendar year is one thing, but more broadly, we're seeing the acceleration of the sector leadership. The laggards in 2020, energy, real estate and finance have come to, to the fore and, I, and a lot of the shine is coming off that IT trade. Thanks, Ben. There was also a big difference in performance of developed markets versus emerging markets last year. Uh, it was a good year for for developed markets overall. Emerging markets down some uh, some two and a half three percent over the year. Asia in particular had a really bad year. What um, what's the story there? Well, I think uh, a lot of the, a lot of it's driven by, by um, COVID concerns. Some of the impacts. Um, a, a few other facts as well. In general, uh, what we know fr- from last year, developed markets were very quick to deploy uh, their, the vaccines that were developed and put into people's arms uh, uh, really accelerated fashion. And that was focused in developed countries. A lot of developed nations held on um, to quite a lot of the vaccine. Not a huge amount made it into uh, into emerging markets the developing parts of the world. And at the same time, we saw emerging markets that actually were relatively unscathed or very lightly touched in 2020, the virus spread to a lot of these regions, particularly as uh, as the faster spreading, more virulent strains um, evolved and existing protections, non-vaccine protections became less effective. So there are a lot of uh, COVID reasons to, to blame for, for some of the underperformance of emerging markets. But also as we've had these economic downturns, emerging markets are simply less able to deal with, with such downturns. They have le- less developed financial institutions. It's harder for them to deploy a lot of monetary stimulus in the way, for example, the Bank of England and the UK government can. So they had challenges there as well. Um, other l- potentially lesser factors, but, but factors that may grow, certainly we look to, to the year ahead. Um, China, we talked before about some of the, or in previous podcasts, about some of uh, the crackdowns. We've seen the authorities there really taking a, a dimmer view of some of the, what they call you know, capitalism with Chinese characteristics. We've seen a clampdown on that, some of the education technology platforms coming under pressure, uh, a lot of countries being forced, both by America and China, but to delist from some of those more lucrative uh, financial markets uh, and effectively do a little bit more um, national services, as they consider it, in China. And obviously, China is the, is the anchor tenant, really, in emerging markets and Asia, and that really took the, some of the shine off as well. Finally, maybe one considers, uh, as we look at the global economy, as uh, 
as the nature of many emerging markets being in parts of the supply chain rather than directly facing the end consumer, I think there is an argument that many of these companies have a little bit less pricing power than perhaps some of the, the consumer staple names. And that in turn makes it harder for them to, to push through price rises. And as we face some of these inflationary pressures, a few more of them have probably had to, to take that on the chin, which again impacts some of those pricing, that, that some of those earnings powers. So all in all, I think there's been quite a few headwinds for EM. But it's important to highlight, I think some of those are likely to persist through this year as well. So it's not a question of them playing catch up, they do have some of the these clouds that might continue to hang for a little while. Great. So let's let's now look ahead to 2022 um, and some of the key themes that we think are likely to uh, to play out. And let's start with inflation. You touched on it there. Big story, of course, in 2021 here in the UK, CPI hit five percent. Uh, similar numbers in the eurozone. Um, US was was even higher, and eye watering 6.8 percent. So, and many have argued that central banks, particularly the Fed too slow to react, but the rhetoric seems to be changing. No longer talk of inflationary being just transitory. And perhaps we will now see some tightening quicker than expected. And that certainly you know, seems to have shaken markets a bit in the first few days of this year. Um, so how do you see inflation playing out from here? And um, what's your latest thoughts on how central banks will respond? As you highlight, inflation, aside from COVID, inflation is the, the topic du jour. Um, and I, I think it's worth talking about the nuance of some of you because actually our view on inflation hasn't really changed. The advantage of doing a podcast series is people can go back and, and listen, and hopefully we have uh, enough regular listeners that, that can verify. Um, but, you know, this is what we've been saying really since, the, certainly throughout last year, really since the back end uh, of 2020, and really events have unfolded as expected. Um, I think the very high levels of inflation we're currently seeing, those fives and sixes that you mentioned, they are set to, to give way. Um, and for a long time, you know, we, we've talked about inflation not being transitory in the sense that too many people uh, were of the impression that, you know, these base effects cause spikes, which is true to, to an extent. A base effect is where you look at all of the really hard hit prices, the, high, the low levels in 2020 compared to the normal levels in 2021. And there's a sort of percent difference for those move out. And that was partly an effect. But what we talked about a lot more last year is the fact that a lot of the inflationary pressures we're seeing are the result of reopening. And as we saw a supply glut in 2020, as you know, the economy shut down, but there's all this inventory and, and production still in the system, we saw the reverse of that in, uh, in 2020, where demand came on a lot quicker than expected. You know, we had a lot of stimulus checks and actually reopening carried on a pace, even as a lot of the production supply side uh, were, were left behind. So I think, you know, these pressures that happen, these bottlenecks that are created when you reopen cause these sort of spikes. But then as the economy normalises, as production gets back uh, underway, there's reasons to think that those bottlenecks can, can relax. Now, that's not to say that we don't think inflation is going to be a factor. We certainly do. And so at the start of last year, uh, we have internal investment committees. We set uh, our, our investment outlook and our house view. And our view at that time was that inflation in the medium term, we sort of look out to the three to five year period. We think inflation will remain and persist above target. But that target, obviously the central bank target around 2%, we think it'll probably hang in this 2 to 4% range, which is high compared to recent history. It's an environment people aren't used to. But nevertheless, it is tolerable. It's something that, that markets will be able to react and adjust to. And it's off the extreme levels 
that we sort of see coming through at the moment. But I think it will drive a lot of changes, particularly as you say, at, uh, at central banks. We've mentioned before you know, the idea of the Greenspan put is probably now imperiled. This idea that any time there's a wobble, central banks just ride to the rescue, um, uh, ride to the rescue in terms of uh, stimulus. It's a lot harder to do that when you have inflation um, above your target. And that's why we've seen central banks carrying on with their tightening, even as we've seen the Omicron wave move through the winter. A lot of people thought, oh, we know what happens now. There's a new wave, central banks pause. Well, they can't do that when inflation is running hot. And that's likely to continue if inflation remains at this level, which is our, our, our sort of base view. And I think what we're seeing is really a compression of, of this hiking uh, the hiking expectations. Um, obviously, the Fed, we always look at the Fed because it, it is sort of the, it's the central bank that manages the US dollar, obviously the most important uh, currency in a global sense. The Fed's accelerated its quantitative easing tapering program. It's now likely to end uh, probably around March time. That allows it to start raising interest rates a little bit sooner. That might be in the summer. And importantly, the big change I think we've seen in the last month, when we look at, uh, at some of the minutes or the minutes coming out of the Fed, they're then even suggesting maybe we'll have quantitative tightening a little bit sooner than we had it uh, historically. Uh, and it's worth remembering, QE is create effectively, in a sense, creating money, putting it in new money, putting it into the system. Once you stop QE, that money is still uh, in circulation. So when uh, that you, you know the QE is invested, for example, into government bonds. When those government bonds mature, that gives cash back to to, to to the holder. In the QE system, that money is then reinvested, and there's then the final step, quantitative tightening, which is reversing all of these balance sheets that, that you've blown up, and that's when that money is effectively uh, that you get the money back on maturity. It then effectively is disappeared from the system. So that third stage is likely to come sooner rather than later. But, you know, all of that is still in line with our view. From the investment outlook point of view, when you look at asset classes and asset prices, it doesn't frankly matter whether the interest rate lift off is this month, next month, next quarter, some point later this year. Uh, it's the more medium term we look at. And all the noise we're seeing at the moment is all about the next year or two. If you look at the longer term uh, projections of where central banks think they'll be, and the market thinks they'll be in several years' time, they haven't really moved a huge amount. And that's why our investment case doesn't really change. Knowing the exact timing of these things is almost impossible. What we do know is we've expect, we expect and have expected for the last 12 or 18 months that interest rates are going to rise and normalise, and therefore one wants to sort of avoid those interest rate-sensitive asset classes, and that hasn't changed. Okay, great. That, that leads me on to my next, uh, my next point. As you say, you're looking at a, a rising yield environment, and that's not an environment that we're, we're used to, um, totally different to what we've seen for you know, the last decade or so. Um, could you talk us through which asset classes you know, historically have performed best in, in, in an environment where interest rates and yields are rising? Absolutely. And, and to a greater or lesser extent, I think there's three things you, you, you've got to consider within these. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the first is what do you want from your what historically has been your bond exposure? Obviously, what we run are multi-asset portfolios. So on, on the one hand, there's a question of what do you use in your portfolio that isn't equities? So the sort of protection, protection is a loaded term. But, you know, what, what do you use to dampen some of that volatility? 
is one aspect. The second aspect is what sort of asset classes can actively do well from inflation. And the third aspect, perhaps the most important one, is where are expectations? Because the most important thing to remember, when we talk about inflation, we talk about interest rates, it's probably less important where are interest rates at the moment. It's more about where expectations are. Because if you look at the 10-year gilt yield, it's already above sort of 1%. So I think, you know, dissecting those a little bit in a multi-asset portfolio, what tends to have your high risk, high return equities, and then you need something to buffer those. Historically, obviously, that has been bonds. But at the moment, I think uh, certainly nominal bonds, so just normal conventional bonds, still look unattractive. These are most sensitive to to interest rates, so they're unattractive. In a lot of our our strategies, we sort of substituted those to an extent with absolute return funds. Now, absolute return funds, there are a range of of potential returns. You're relying very heavily on the skill of of the individual manager. Um, So it's important to get your your, uh, fund selection right. And obviously, we're lucky we have a large team to look at that sort of day in, day out. But absolute return funds, good absolute return funds, should be able to perform uh, in all sorts of different environments. So they're there to anticipate the environment and try and provide uh, a return. You have all sorts of different styles. The funds styles we prefer tend to be those sort of lower risk, lower return strategies that can grind out performance regards to the environment. So we often use those uh, in place of, of, of core sovereign bonds. Other asset classes, infrastructure, for example, also sits in alternatives, can do a, a good job if, if managed right. And also, you know, you can stay in fixed income and move more towards low duration assets. Those are assets that have less interest rate sensitivity. But you can look at corporate bonds. Now, if you invest in corporate bonds, they do take on a little bit more uh, default risk, but they are a little bit less interest rate sensitive. So if you have a short dated corporate bond, you can get exposure to some of that credit, a bit less exposure to interest rates. And actually, they can still perform even if rates are, are gradually moving higher. Then as you get away from those, you're into areas, uh, things like gold. Gold could be used as a uh, uh, as a bit of a store of wealth, it is impacted a little bit by rising rates, but they can can perform um, a little bit of uh, almost like insurance in a portfolio against negative events. Otherwise, you do need to be looking at things like cash. If you're there for dry powder and nothing else is suitable, then using cash just to reduce your over, overall portfolio exposure is an option. Um, and at some point, we'll mark the card now it's the start of 2022 it's easy to be negative on court, uh, on government bonds but at some point i do think one needs to be thinking at what point would they become attractive because you know when assets continue to sell off at some point for most asset classes there is an opportunity where you say actually they've probably oversold uh and might be interesting i don't think that's the case at the moment but i think we should have in our minds when would they become more attractive and at some point if they start to become positive in real terms, then, you know, I, I potentially consider those consider those as well. That's in terms of, of substitution for, for government bonds. In terms of asset classes that can do well in a rising interest rate environment, then I think your main go-to, frankly, is equities. Particularly as it's happening at the moment, if interest rates are rising because uh, central banks saying, you know, the economy's doing well, we're hiking into strength, that's good for businesses. It's almost a, a vote of confidence the economy can stand on its own two feet. And a lot of uh, equities, those companies can pass through a lot of these concerns around inflation. The reason, for example, inflation is going up 
for a consumer, consumer price index, is consumers are paying higher prices. So you look at the supermarkets, for example, you know, not saying they're necessarily a good investment in isolation, but if you consider those as businesses, all of those inflationary costs pass straight through to the consumer, and that's why consumers are facing them. Those sort of businesses and equities are better able to deal with, with these kind of environments. It compares with those challenges we talked about earlier with emerging markets that have less pass-through and pricing power. So equities are really your, your main go-to if you think we're going to continue to have a rising rate environment. And specifically within equities, you know, higher yields typically and historically have favoured cyclical value sectors. So your, your financials, um, energy, industrials, those sort of sectors, less so growth. We've seen a big sell-off in, in tech or you know this, this year so far. Is this a sort of star rotation value over growth? Is that going to continue in 2022, do you think? Um, I, I, I think calling styles is always... Styles and currencies are frankly the two hardest things to call in uh, in investments, and there's a lot of scope for looking stupid. Um, but I do think you know, growth growth has done pretty well over the very well over the last few years. I think now is high time for that rotation. I think what's what sort of caused that rotation has been these interruptions from COVID. Every time there's a new variant, the sudden expectation. Maybe there's a pause. But if we do continue to see economies gradually reopening, there'll be bumps along the way, but a rising sort of trajectory. I think some of these more valuey names, particularly those that have suffered over the last couple of years, are likely to come under pressure. Um, you know, there, there's two different reasons for this. One is the negative impact on out-and-out growth companies. And that's because, you know, there's technical reason it's around discount rates. If you consider as an equity owner, you're in a sense you get the equivalent earnings uh, that, that a company makes. And earnings in the future, when interest rates rise, they're worth less today because you use interest rates as, uh, as a form of discount. That's why a lot of these tech names, these growth companies are coming off the boil because all, a lot of their biggest earnings growth potentials in the future, as discount rates rise, that those current value uh, equivalent of, of earnings today looks less attractive. So some of it is impact on growth. Areas such as value that have been left behind can do better as rates rise, particularly banks, because uh, you know banks make money on the difference between the long rates. So basically, the money they get from you, me, and uh, many of our listeners in terms of mortgages is the money that they make, which is a long-term uh, lending, versus what they have to pay out on short-term savings. So the difference between short-term rates and long-term rates is where they make their money. And as rates rise, they tend to get steeper. Um, so so. Banks can, can make money there. And there is a little caveat. It's not going to be plain sailing because, as we said before, short rates are moving up. But actually, longer rates are a little bit anchored and aren't rising quite as much. So there may be nuance along the way. Um, but I certainly think some of those areas that have done particularly well over the last few years, the, mo the growthiest areas will probably come under a bit of pressure. Uh, some of the value areas are likely to play a bit of catch up. And things like travel and leisure uh, tied in with that as well of course it's all about expectations so you know we're already seeing a lot of this start to get priced in it's all about inflation we've mentioned covid variants um central bank policy any other themes to look out for in 2022 do you think yeah i i, I think one of the thing the, the two things i would highlight is keeping an eye on is particularly the the continued push into sustainable investing I mean, it's not really a 2022 consideration, but I think we're going to see a lot more noise on it. Um, the last couple of years have seen much action 
and some early launches. I think we're going to see it broadening out very significantly. Um, as, you know, it, there's a lag between recognising it as a theme, developing uh, products on a medium-term basis. I think we'll start to see a lot more of that coming through. As a side note, we mentioned before how much pressure uh, tech has come under. It's worth mentioning there's a little bit of a tension between a lot of the sustainable investment moves we're seeing at the moment and the tech industry, um, because a lot of technology requires quite a, an eye-watering amount of energy to run all these server farms. There are talks about you know the, the cost of sending emails. I think there might be a little bit of pressure coming in that way. The other theme that I think is still worth thinking about, though, it's a theme we followed but for many years, but quality. Um, and I think a lot of people talk think about quality investing. They think it's synonymous uh, with growth because um, there's a, you know, a lot of names that have done well recently have been both growth and quality. But actually, if you look through the business cycle, you have the sort of recovery and expansion phase. Then you have the sort of mid phase and the decline phase. And because we've had a compression, COVID followed by government intervention has led really to a compression of the cycle. And actually, we are quite quickly moving into the mid-cycle. So, you know, value still still has a place. But I think what we might see, quality companies do tend to do well uh, in those last two cycles, in the mid-cycle and even declining cycle. Quality there, you know, quality and value are both interesting plays. They're not opposites in any sense. Quality also often tends to mean, you know, companies with relatively low debts, with reproducible earnings, um, high return on equity, those are good businesses that continue could, could continue to, to sort of churn out. So I, I would consider quality out there. And really, I flag that as uh, there's been a strong performance in both quality and growth names recently. I think now so many people have sort of lumped them together. I think we may see a differentiation as growth names come under pressure for those quality names get differentiated a little bit more. And I think we'll see some of that nuance play through in 2022. All points to another fascinating year for markets. So fantastic. Thanks, Ben, as always, for your comments. We'll be back again soon with a new episode. If you have any feedback, questions or comments, please send us an email at podcast at tilney.co.uk.